When the Nissan Leaf electric-powered car visited Cambridge, we just had to go see it. As a family-sized car that produces no exhaust fumes at all, it could one day help our city smell sweeter. Mm-hmm. And in today's show, we hear from the man responsible for the car's development. We examine the technology behind the world's best-selling electric vehicle called the Nissan Leaf. It's a car to drive across town and be happy with the thought that you're not pumping out pollution or adding to the roar of traffic noise when you do. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. As we'll hear, the Nissan Leaf is no science experiment of a car. It's a real production car that's selling now. It has a top speed of 90 miles an hour, and a single charge of its battery will take you 100 miles, which, for city commuting that I often do, has been ample. Mm -hmm. So, Roger, what does LEAF stand for, by the way? LEAF, L-E-A-F, stands for Leading Environmentally Friendly Affordable Family Car. I think they call that a backronym because it seems a bit awkward. And you you start with the word and work backwards to fill it in. The Nissan Leaf has already won a World Car of the Year award. And the models sold over here are made over here in Sunderland. All right. And Roger was lucky to catch up with Nissan's vehicle evaluation manager, Steve Groves. Steve was giving a talk here at Cambridge University Engineering Department. And actually, our local branch of the Institution of Engineering and Technology really deserve the credit for inspiring firing this week's topic. So for that, we extend our thanks to them. And let's have a listen to our Roger Frost chatting with Nissan's Steve Groves. I'm vehicle development manager. So my role is to define the vehicle targets from the outset for the cars. So that basically means I'm lucky enough to be involved in projects right from the very beginning. And because we're a global company with the development that's taking place in Europe or with the development that's taking place in Japan, And then when we get through to the physical phase, I'm responsible for managing the development of the vehicle, the testing of the vehicle, making sure that all the testing is done correctly, and I report to the chief engineer. What was the requirement in in terms of this particular car? What we recognised was that although there were many electric vehicles out there, there wasn't any car that was a credible passenger car for everyday use that was basically safe and durable. And the step change that we wanted to make as Nissan was basically to produce a mass production electric car that could be produced around the world that would basically have a universal appeal. I've just had a look at the Nissan Leaf. It's no milk float. It's a proper production car. The perceptions of electric cars is they are like milk floats. When we launched Leaf in Portugal, we actually played on this a little bit. And we, uh, we actually got some golf buggies. And we brought the journalists from the hotel to the venue in golf buggies. And we played with this with the journalists just for fun. But actually it was something I also played with my children. I was very lucky. I had the first prototype leaf in Europe. And I took it home to Northampton to show my children. And my children, lucky enough to be the first kids who ever went out in the car. And I drove them round the roundabout in Northampton. And I said, actually, its acceleration's rather poor. And I was barely touching the throttle. They were sat on the back seats with their seatbelts on. And then as we came out onto the dual carriageway, out of the roundabout, I floored it. And they were pinned into the back seats. And they were just amazed, the squeals of excitement. And they just couldn't believe that an electric car could have that level of instantaneous torque and acceleration. And how fast does it go? It has a top speed of 90 miles an hour. 
an acceleration of 11.5 seconds, which is sort of on the par with the average 1.6-litre family car. And for a milk float, that's awesome. Yeah, it's no milk float. The other thing is, as well, is milk floats don't handle very well. And actually, some electric cars on the market up to that point hadn't handled very well. So one of the things we put a lot of emphasis in was having very good European-style handling. So the car didn't roll, it had a flat ride. And obviously, one of the advantages we have is because the battery is located in the middle of the car, we have a low polar moment of inertia which basically means that the car goes round corners better. So in one sense, it actually can handle better than a traditional petrol car where the mass is located at the front of the car. So I imagine there were some design challenges that must have hit you immediately. The main breakthrough is with the battery technology. So essentially, Nissan's had electric cars since 1947. We had a, a little electric car called the Tamar Electric Vehicle, which was present in Japan after the war when there was a fuel shortage. But the disadvantage of electric cars at that time was they used lead-acid batteries, which weren't durable and weren't reliable. The breakthrough for Nissan in 1999 was the development of the cylindrical lithium-ion battery, which was much more durable. But the main breakthrough for us as Nissan was the development of the lithium-ion flat cell. And by having flat cells, we were now in a position where we could package the battery underneath the vehicle. So obviously, you want to make a family car, you want space for five adults and their luggage. And the disadvantage of electric cars up to that point was the batteries take up half the space of the car. So the key breakthrough for us was having this flat cell which we could package underneath the floor. So now we can get five adults on board and we can get the luggage in the boot. This essentially meant that we now had something that we could offer to customers that was really practical. And in a sense, that was the main focusing point, was actually packaging the batteries underneath the vehicle. The other consideration point is also from a safety point of view. You want the battery pack to be shielded basically from front and rear impact. So the batteries are encased in a a steel-reinforced cage, which is, is assembled from underneath the vehicle. So the other consideration point when we were designing this car was also ease of assembly. So we could build the battery module independently. We're now building that in NMUK plant alongside the main manufacturing plant. And that can be installed from underneath. The other aspect is that we wanted as far as possible to keep conventional vehicle architecture. So having an engine at the front, instead we have an electric powertrain at the front which installs again from underneath the engine bay in the same way as an engine does. And actually, we build these cars online at NMUK, and we build Nissan Qashqai, which is a a petrol and diesel car, and then we send the Nissan Leaf electric car in the same line sequence, down the same line. We put in a a petrol or diesel engine into a Qashqai, the Leaf comes along and we put an electric engine, if you like, into a Leaf. By doing this, we're now in the realms of mass production technology. And once you're in the realms of mass production technology, you can make the car cheaper. And if we can make the car cheaper, it becomes accessible for everybody. And this essentially is where we have to get to with electric cars, bringing the cost down, firstly of the battery cost and then the manufacturing cost. And the battery is quite an expensive item, is it? The cost of the battery is coming down year on year. Um, And already we started production of LEAF in 2011. We localised manufacture of the LEAF. And as a consequence of that, we've been able to introduce an entry grade of the car, which is £5,000 cheaper than the original car. What they taught me at school about batteries is that the cell voltage is something like 1.2, 1.5. Now, presumably, you have quite a few little batteries in that car. Does that mean they're all linked together in series and make some very... 
big voltage. The Leaf battery itself is a 24, has basically 24 kilowatt hours of capacity, and it's a 400 volt battery. It's a 400 volt battery made up of 44 battery modules, each with four individual cells in that module. One of the big challenges for us is obviously the ancillaries of the car, which are close to the customer, we don't want to be running at 400 volts. So we have a transformer that transforms the the voltage from 400 volts to 12 volts. So all of the ancillaries that the customer is linked to run at 12 volts as they do in a standard car. And all of the power cables for the powertrain are located underneath the car, completely shielded in very, very heavy shielding so that they can't become damaged as the car goes around and also they're completely isolated from the customer. Does the car have a heater? Perhaps there's no waste heater to recirculate. The original car, so the the Leaf that we launched in 2011, because we were focusing on the powertrain technology, we used a a traditional heater circuit. So we actually had a a thermoelectric heater in the engine bay, which heated up a water circuit, which took the water into the heat exchanger in the HVAC unit and basically heated the cabin. So we replaced the petrol engine with just a heater that heated up the water circuit. Now, obviously, that wasn't a very efficient way of doing it. And when we developed the new leaf, which we're producing in Sunderland, we replaced that with a heat pump. So as any sort of first-year engineering student knows, that essentially if you run a heat pump circuit in one direction, it takes heat out of the atmosphere and puts it into the car. If you run it the other way, it takes heat out of the car and puts it into the atmosphere, which is air conditioning. So that's the system that we now use on current LEAF. And through that, we were able to reduce the mass of the car and increase the efficiency of the heating. Sounds brilliant. Now, I notice this car, it's very quiet. Yeah, the thing that people don't realise is that one of the key breakthroughs of an electric car is it's absolutely silent. This silence combined with stunning acceleration is really, if you like, the, the, the wow factor of, of an electric car. Was there not some issue in people, pedestrians, walking around and not being aware of a car that was very quiet? Well, during the development of LEAF, as I say, I'm responsible for the target setting for the car, and I was obviously aware of how quiet it was. And as I was driving home one evening, I actually heard um, a Radio 4 programme on this subject, and it was essentially talking about the potential impact that electric cars would have on the environment. And at the same time, my colleagues in Japan and the US were having a similar thinking. So actually, when we launched LEAF, we introduced it with the vehicle sound for pedestrians. And as the car goes along, up to 35 kilometres an hour, it emits a very small sound which is of a certain frequency that's actually more audible to people who are partially sighted because they have slightly more acute hearing. And then when it's in reverse in gear, we have like an intermittent sound, again, which is audible to people around the car. And this was essentially was so that people could be aware of the cars moving around. We we had a huge debate about what we were going to make it sound like. Mm. Um, We can make it sound like a Ferrari if we wanted to, Mm. or a Mustang, but obviously we didn't feel that was quite the right sound. You know, those are the muscle cars of the past, and we felt that electric cars were moving into the future. In a sense, when we were debating the sounds, we watched 21st century movies from back in the 70s. The cars that were in those movies, what did they sound like? One of the sounds we hit on was the Japanese Shinkansen. As a Japanese Shinkansen pulls into a station, it's got this wonderful sound of motive power from its electric motors. Obviously, a leaf isn't a Shinkansen. It's mm. much on a much smaller scale. But we wanted the car to have that sort of quality. 
this was an electric car and that was the electric sound that they were expecting. So that's what it sounds like? Not exactly like a Shenkanton. It sounds like you would expect an electric motor to sound, but actually an electric motor is almost silent. We're in the engineering department just now. There are labs here. Does a, a motor manufacturer also have development labs? Yeah, the development of the battery and motor technology started in earnest in around 20, well, as I said, from 1996 with the cylindrical battery, but then from 2005 with the flat lithium-ion cells. That research was mainly done in Japan. For the battery, it was done in collaboration between Nissan's Advanced Technology Centre and NEC. There was basically a battery manufacturer. And through that collaboration, we actually developed the battery technology, which is the Automotive Energy Supply Corporation. So effectively, the the battery technology is jointly owned by Nissan and NEC. And the technology was developed in the lab in, in Japan as a collaboration. But as a global car, myself and my U.S. colleagues were feeding into Japan. This is actually what we need from a customer's perspective. So we need this much range, we need this speed range, and this essentially was fed into the development, so finally the car could deliver that output when we put it back on the road. So obviously we were quite excited when we first got the chance to actually try it out. Often when I look at a car, I think that somebody has made some decisions and done some experiments on the materials that the car is made from. Where does that experimentation go on? There's a huge range of experimentation. So in the context of the battery we were just discussing, mm-hmm. there was a huge amount of experimentation done on the, the cellular structure of the battery itself. And the key breakthrough with the design of the electrodes within the cell was actually nanotechnology. And the, the problem with mobile phone batteries in the past is that over time, the electrodes would start to disintegrate. And that's actually what caused a mobile phone batteries, if you like, over time to expand and basically deteriorate. The, the key breakthrough in our electrodes technology is what we call a spinel structure, which is essentially, if you like, a matrix which allows the ions in the electrolyte to go into the cathode and into the anode without the electrode structure deteriorating. And that means that we know from durability trials we've done that using a a standard charging pad, we've actually tested the battery out to five years, which we guarantee, but further than that, so we use a correct charging strategy, the battery will last the lifetime of the vehicle. So that's at one level of testing. Then mentioning the other end of the testing, which, for example, you know, does the exterior deteriorate under UV, that's fairly standard within automotive. So we have component tests, which all the suppliers do, which are standard tests. And then we have vehicle tests, which I manage as a development manager. So we have a combination of supplier testing and development testing, which basically allows us to quality assure the, the product to the customer. Just by the by, am I coming to you and saying I've got a new plastic which is brilliant for this part of the car or are you going to them and saying we need a plastic for this part of the car or for this particular issue or for this particular problem? Engineering is always comes from two directions. Okay. It comes from many directions. So my job title within Nissan is, is twofold. I'm the vehicle development manager, so I control the testing of the vehicle and report to the CVEs I just described. But I'm also the manager of what's called customer-oriented engineering. So my role partly is going out and talking to customers in the market and finding out what their unmet needs are. 
as an engineer, my role then is to come back into Nissan and convert that into actual ideas for new features or new technologies or new materials. And then from there, that goes into mainstream Nissan engineering, and our mainstream engineers and advanced technology specialists are looking for a technology that satisfies that customer need. At the same time, of course, we have our antenna, and we go out and we talk to the supplier base, and we talk to universities, and we talk to the industry in a whole to gather information and data. So in a sense, in the example you just gave, we might go to that manufacturer and say, have you got a plastic that does this? or not. But similarly, the plastic manufacturer knows that we as an OEM are interested in new technology, so they come knocking on our door and say, look, we've got this new technology and it's of interest to you as a company. So it's constant communication. And obviously, as an OEM, to be competitive, you've got to constantly keep your eyes and ears open for those new opportunities. But we're also working quite closely with universities as well. For example, we have a, a development with Sheffield University for motor technology, We've got a collaboration with Gateshead College based at our Nissan Motor Manufacturing Plant in Sunderland where part of that manufacturing site is actually now jointly shared with Gateshead College. And the intention of that was to promote technologies around electric vehicles alongside manufacturing of the Nissan LEAF. So we have companies which are working on making new quick chargers, for example, which deliver 50 kilowatts to the car so we can charge it up in 30 minutes. In a sense, as a manufacturer, we want to make sure that, if possible, that charging becomes harmonised on one protocol. So in in one sense, we're encouraging manufacturers to work with us on protocols and then at the same time talking to other OEMs and trying, if you like, to harmonise charging technologies so that actually electric motoring can become a reality more easily for customers as a whole. Now, Steve, thank you very much. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Thank you to Steve Groves, Vehicle Evaluation Manager for Nissan Cars. He was talking there with our science show's Roger Frost. Now, Roger, it looks like you're still reading some brochures for the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so aside from the nifty factor and avoiding smelly gas fumes, electric cars, they're pretty attractive for their cheap running costs, right? Yeah, there's no or little road tax to pay each year. And if you drive regularly in London, you'll save a couple of thousand pounds a year on the local congestion charge. And to top it all, there's no pet device so your running cost is based on the electricity you need to charge it overnight all right but break it down for us because i like to hear numbers okay the numbers go like this if you have a regular petrol fueled car that will cost you 20p a mile in fuel but the nissan leaf by comparison runs you for just 2p a mile Hmm. this assumes that i'm going to drive 10,000 miles a year in my car that means I would be paying £2,000 a year for petrol. Mm -hmm. The Nissan Leaf does the same work for £200. That's got to be impressive. Yeah, that's cheaper by a factor of 10. Wow. All right, so you know what I'm going to ask you now, don't you? Uh, Don't you? uh, (laughs) I think it's the question on everybody's mind is how do we charge the car? That's the big question for electric vehicles. Well, (laughs) plug it in, really. Um, The bonnet of the Nissan Leaf has a charging port under a flap and has a couple of sockets. One 
socket is for fast charging. The other one is for slow charging. Fast charging you'd use if you were away from home when you were perhaps using a LEAF as a commercial vehicle, like as a commercial taxi, because in Brazil they have LEAF taxis. Mm. Now, on the other socket, there's a regular 3-kilowatt charger, which takes overnight to charge the battery from empty. Okay. In the USA, where the main supply is just a tiddly 120 volts instead of the UK's fantastic 240 volts. Watch it there. <laughs> the battery charges much more slowly. So US owners will probably install a 240 volt charging outlet to match what we have in the UK and get the benefit of a faster charge. Okay, but what are the requirements for charging at home? What do we need? At home, you need a regular 13 amp power socket, nothing you haven't seen before. You need that somewhere where you park your car. There's a bundled in deal when you buy a new car that you can get a socket installed somewhere around your car space at home. Unless you live on a third floor flat and then you're out of luck. But otherwise, that sounds yes, good. That's true. And apparently for the 2014 model, Nissan plans to introduce an inductive charger. In other words, a, a wireless recharging point. Oh, I like the idea of wireless recharging. That's neat. Well, inductive charging, it just lets you connect the car to a sealed socket to avoid the risks of electricity mixing with water if you're picking up plugs and trying to plug it in on a rainy day, say. Uh, right. That's the same as the toothbrush, electronic toothbrush chargers, right? Yeah, so they use an inductive charger, and if memory serves, um, it charges when it's physically close to the charger, and it has a coil inside, and there's another coil on the electricity side, and one coil induces a current in the other, and so it turns magnetism into electricity that way. But I think I'm really curious to know about charging while I'm away from home, because I really like to take cross-country trips, so how would we do that? Okay, well, there's a network of points around the country, and your car will have a dashboard with an electronic map and a GPS for finding these things. Mm -hmm. And I've just put this app on my phone, which shows all the public places that I can recharge. And the app is telling me that the nearest charging point to here in the studio is the Grafton Shopping Centre car park. Hmm. And for the record, there's another five of them around town, just as there are another five petrol stations around town. Okay. So charge points are pretty easily discoverable and probably growing. But how far do you think I could actually travel before I'd have to pull off the road and plug in somewhere? Because I'm just imagining, you know, getting stuck in the middle of farm country somewhere with no charge ports around. Okay. Well, a full charge takes you 100 miles. So it's, it's not your car for everyone and everything mm -hmm. or for every journey. But for my traveling, there was enough miles there to do all but, say, last year's holiday. Okay, so it takes you about 100 miles. It wouldn't do my holiday. Okay. But I imagine there's probably pressure to improve that, so we'll keep an eye. Okay, yeah, there will be. Right now, in terms of battery charge, you get 20 kilowatt hours of power. It's worth actually knowing this unit because it, it crops up such a lot. So, for example, I was buying an electric drill last week. It was a battery-powered drill. And my electric drill has a battery which holds an impressive 2 amp hours. That means it delivers 2 amps for an hour. Mm -hmm. But that's nothing, in fact, compared to what's in this car battery, which is 24 kilowatts of power for an hour. In right. other words, you would need a thousand electric drills to match the power of that car battery. <laughs> All right. So you said the LEAF is cheap to operate, right? Mm -hmm. but I really want to know how we assess the efficiency in electric vehicles because obviously we can't use the same metric of miles per gallon of petrol. Yeah, well, you can, but I would definitely laugh at you. <laughs> Owners do get asked this question, which is what sort of mileage do you get? And of course, it, it doesn't work like that. But you can play with figures to arrive with something like that. So if you come up with an energy cost of 
two kilowatts per hour to travel one kilometer mm-hmm. this fiddly 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 comes out to 100 miles per gallon and at uk prices you can say that your out-of-pocket cost is about 2p a mile okay right okay but you're looking at the brochure now yeah, well, uh, so what, <laughs> I'm what's catching your eye? Well, okay, I'm looking at a solar panel, which is kind of cool. It's shaped like a spoiler. It says here that it charges an extra battery and boosts power to other interior devices like the radio. Ah, that is pretty neat because, as you know, Roger, good tunes are vital to a good road trip. Of course. Uh, what else? Let's see. It also says that you can use your smartphone app or a web page to remotely turn on the heater while it's still charging outside your house. And I like that one. So you can heat or cool the car prior to hopping in and save your battery power before driving off, which I think is a smart one too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, it's silent. Steve actually mentioned that they had to add sound to it, didn't he? Yeah. The Leaf car is as quiet as a bicycle, so they fitted a synthesizer to alert pedestrians or the blind people that there's a vehicle passing in front of them. Mm. The forward and reversing sounds it makes are easy to hear outside the car. They come from a speaker near the front wheel arch. And get this, Nissan worked with psychologists to develop the actual sounds that they used. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So the psychologist showed that a sound that sweeps down in pitch from a squeaky 2 kilohertz down to 600 hertz is the most easily audible sound for different age groups. Hmm. And the sound made depends on whether the leaf is accelerating or decelerating. Hmm. And so the sounds sort of stop and start around about 15 miles an hour. So once you go over 15 miles an hour, the, the sound cuts out. You know, I was reading that in the old model, they could apparently temporarily turn off the sound from inside the car. Yeah. But you can, you can imagine the American Blind Society now getting very unhappy that a driver's could possibly turn off that sound. So mm. they removed that feature. However, in the UK, the rules are different and upside down. And the law insists that hazard warnings must be capable of being disabled during the night. So they kept the switch. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, what about down to money? Mm-hmm. How much do you think this car would cost me to own? Okay, well, the price paid for the Leaf car may take some time to recover in the fuel fuel terms. Yeah. yeah. So a consumer organization compared the electric-powered Nissan Leaf with the petrol-powered Nissan Versa. Okay, so what did they find? Well, based on the cheaper fuel prices in the U.S., they calculated that the Leaf could pay for itself over nine years. Whereas in the U.K., where petrol prices are higher, the Leaf would pay for itself sooner, over maybe five to seven years. These figures assume you're going to be driving 15,000 miles a year. Mm, well, once I pay off my student loans, I might just consider getting a little electric car to toodle around town in. Yeah, you do that. But just the point that this particular Leaf is not a little car, so you're going to have to wait until a little version comes along by the time your loan is paid off, mm. which will be sometime in the next millennium, I think. <laughs> Maybe the next lifetime. Yep, yep, about then. (laughs) All right. Well, many thanks to the Cambridge Institution of Engineering and Technology for realizing the appeal of this topic and asking Steve to come over and have a chat with us about it. Okay. Well, this is one of several IET, that's what you might call them, I've been to, and each one was a gem. I've put a link to them on the Cambridge 105 website so that listeners might join their mailing list. Uh, What does IET stand for? IET stands for Institution of Engineering and Technology. Thanks, Roger. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm.
You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>